0: And while you're opening it up, let me tell you about a brand new study that was just released. It shows that couples feuding over President Trump are heading to divorce in record numbers. Brand new study. They looked at 1,000 people to get these statistics. Millennials, married and unmarried, are breaking up, 22% of them, over political differences most centered on President Trump. Now, this is not a Trump bashing. This is just actually interesting. Non-millennials are breaking up at a rate of 10% over the presidential election. 24%, the study says. Now, how much do you really want to believe these studies? you got to be careful with it. But 24% of Americans in a relationship or married, so you're either dating or you're married, you're in a relationship, 24% of Americans are reporting that since Trump was elected, and I'm quoting, they and their partner have disagreed or argued about politics more than ever. Now, that's actually as far as we're gonna go with the political part of this message, because that's really not the purpose of this. The purpose is to show us that marriage and relationships are difficult. And divorce and remarriage is an extremely sensitive topic. Did you know that when a lot of pastors preach through the Sermon on the Mount inexplicably, they skip these two verses? It's very sensitive. There's a lot of disagreement in the church, particularly on remarriage. And for those of us who are divorced or who have been impacted by divorce there's likely a quagmire of bitterness resentment anxiety that is stirring up even knowing what i'm about to preach on feelings of guilt and shame and humiliation usually comp- accompany the severing of a marriage but my aim today and next week cuz this is a two part mini series within this sermon series is to be sensitive, clear, practical, and of course, absolutely Scripture-centered. So I'm going to give you this week some background on the words that Jesus preaches in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and verse 32. We're going to go a little bit to Matthew 19, where he expounds on that. Then next week, and I hope you come back, I'm going to give you very, very practical answers to questions that people are asking on the subject of divorce and remarriage. So let's begin by understanding this. Now, you ready? This is absolutely critical that we start at this place, at least in my opinion. And I really want to speak to those who are single, meaning those who were married and are now not married or those who have not yet ever been married, I really want to speak to you. I want to speak to married couples as well. But here's what I want to impress on you, and I want you to listen to this very, very carefully. The light of God, meaning His blessing and beautiful revelation that He gave to Old Testament Israel, mainly through His prophets and through His law. The light of God... Was removed from Israel and they were plunged into spiritual darkness that lasted over 400 years. And I want you to hear this. A major reason why this happened was widespread divorce. And I want to read that to you. Malachi chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. You just got to flip back one book. It's the very last book of the Old Testament, or you can read it on the screen. Here's what. God said through Malachi, yet you cover the altar with your tears because the Lord doesn't pay attention to your offerings anymore, and you receive no blessing from Him. Why has God abandoned us, you cry? Well, I'll tell you why. It is because the Lord has seen your treachery and divorcing your wives who have been faithful to you through the years, the companions that you promised to care for and keep. You were united to your wife by the Lord. In God's wise plan, when you married, the two of you became one person in his sight. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. Therefore, guard your passions. Keep faith with the wife of your youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says he hates divorce and cruel men. Therefore, control your passions. Let there be no divorcing of your wives. Now, men, who is God aiming this message to? Well, in that society, in that day, divorce was almost always originating from men, husbands to their wives. And God hates divorce. Now, I don't know how to get around that. And I would never want to get around that. Why would you want to? There is a load of mercy, and there's a load of grace and beauty on the institution of marriage in that statement. God hates divorce, but listen, He hates cruel men who sever the relationship bond without reason, without just cause. And He protects the vulnerable who suffer from divorce, who biblically, in the ancient Old Testament, were wives and children. They're the vulnerable. And with that, we're going to begin looking in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. So, so far, what you've heard is that the light was extinguished from Israel in part due to the prevalence of divorce. And God says and declares, I hate divorce, and I hate cruel men that leave women and children vulnerable. We move to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, where I want you to notice the first four words of Jesus in verse 31. It was also said. Now, Jesus uses this phrase, or some variation of it, to point his audience straight to the twisted labyrinth of rules and regulations called the oral law, which the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis had created. They had taken God's law. Now, this is not the boring introduction. This is vital, you know. They had taken God's law, given through Moses, and made nearly countless interpretations, resulting in a man-made system of religion that they called traditions. And I want you to notice specifically what Jesus said about this in the subject of divorce and remarriage. Verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, this is what was said, Here's the tradition. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, if you're really going to understand this and what Jesus is saying, what he's about to say, then we need to understand three things. And by the way, this is our outline, three points. You ready? Here they are. We need to understand the distortion that the scribes and the Pharisees made about divorce and remarriage. Secondly, we need to understand the Scripture's passage that they distorted. And thirdly, we're gonna see and understand the clarification that Jesus made. So here we go, you ready? This is gonna be a whirlwind of, I think, interesting, hopefully sobering, and an, I hope encouraging information in this sermon. So let's look at the first one. Number one, the distortion of marriage and divorce by the rabbis. There had been a great debate raging for years, actually centuries, ever since the Jewish people were taken into Babylonian captivity, and the rabbis and the scribes really came into being as interpreters of God's law, they they ushered in a debate on this subject, and it centered on one word— the debate centered on one word. It's found in Matthew, or Deuteronomy 24, 1. I'm going to read the verse. We'll go to this in a little while, but here's the verse. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. There's the word. And he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, we're going to look at the rest of this. My purpose now is to show you one word created the debate. The burning question was, the controversy was, what does it mean by indecency? What is the indecency? And the debate raged between two schools of rabbis, both of which were headed by a very, led by a very famous rabbi, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shamil: two famous rabbis who had a whole host of followers, all right before Jesus walked this planet. The liberal school was the school of Hillel, and they interpreted the word indecency in the broadest manner possible. It has, it's been, by the way, this is a little bit of an aside, so I want you to hear this because I've seen this over and over in marriage counseling. It's been my experience in ministry that those who desperately want a divorce tend to broaden biblical thought on the subject, and they begin to unwittingly and maybe not so unwittingly twist it beyond what the Scripture says. That's what emotional pain can do. This is why you've got to have godly friends in your life, why I need them in my life. For when pain begins to distort the Word of God, to begin to say what I want it to say as a way out of the pain, I need a godly friend to be able to say, wait a minute, Tim, I think we better look at this again. Well here's what Hillel school was doing. They were broadening it. They terribly distorted it. By the way, in, if you don't remember much else so far, remember this: This was the dominant school when Jesus walked the earth. This was the one that was in vogue. This position was the popular one when Jesus is preaching this. And they interpreted Hillel did indecency to mean anything from openly immodest. Wife, or a flirtatious wife, now listen, or a wife that perhaps burned her husband's dinner or put too much salt in his food. All of this began to be captured under what some indecency from Deuteronomy 24 was. It might be, they thought, they believed, they taught, that she went out of the house with her hair down. Ladies, that was something that a Jewish woman never did outside of her bedroom with her husband. Her hair was always tied up, which shows you in Luke just how shocking it was when the woman of the city came in to the Pharisees' home where Jesus was being entertained and knelt down and loosened her hair and wiped her tears off his feet with her hair. Shocking. Shocking. Or it might be in decency that she spoke to another man on the street or in the market. Or, now you're all going to love this, or she might have said an unkind word about her husband's mother. Not that that would ever happen with us. (laughs) Or if she embarrassed her husband in front of his friends. Now, I'm going to tell you, one of the rabbis that was part of the school of Hillel that followed Rabbi Hillel was Rabbi Akiba, and he said, In decency was also if a man's wife, in his eyes, was found to not be as pretty as another woman. Now, listen, I'm impressing it, this on you to, underst- to help you understand what was behind, what was the backdrop behind the words that Jesus is teaching in this sermon, in these verses. Truly to them, to the school of Hillel, a man could divorce his wife for no reason, for none was literally no longer required. Marriage in Israel had fallen to a point where a wife was terribly the property of her husband. But there was a second rabbinical school of Shemiel, and these rabbis defined indecency as specifically only the act of adultery, adultery, and it was the only grounds for divorce. They're the conservative countering the liberal school of Hillel. Now, neither school had it quite right. In fact, both had it terribly wrong. Now, you remember what we've been teaching you about God's law in this series, that he gave it to us to reveal his character and His will That's what the law of God is for. Listen, if you don't understand that, this will illuminate, this will excite your study of God's Word. What is found in God's Word is a mirror for us to be able to see what God's character is like and what His will is for us. This is how you know how we ought to live from what the Word of God is. And how we ought to live is identically, inextricably connected to who God is. And it's all revealed in the Word of God. So, with that said, let's look at the Deuteronomy passage, point number two. The passage that they distorted and a little bit of its clarification. Did you know, by the way, before we get to Deuteronomy 24, that extensive studies have shown that in virtually every known human society, the institution of the family has determined the longevity and the health of that society. Now, I want you to hear this. In fact, let me say that a little bit differently and a little bit more strongly. You ready? Now, listen to this. Sociologists and historical experts have found that every known great society that crumbled, crumbled for the main reason that the family system had eroded, without exception, The evidence shows from the Witherspoon Institute, marital breakdown reduces the collective welfare of our children, the good of our children, strains our justice system, weakens civil society, and increases the size and scope of governmental power. So, the question of what causes a civilization to fail, it's complex, but at the very bottom of all researched data is the disintegration of the family unit, now listen, of which the foundation is the marriage. You see, when Jesus walked this earth, the family worldwide was in crisis, The New Testament must be viewed, by the way, if you want to understand this, this is really important. When you read the New Testament, when you study the New Testament, it has to be viewed with two backdrops. The Greco-Roman, the Greek-Roman backdrop is one, and the Hebrew backdrop is the second one, the Jewish backdrop. Greek culture, let's look at that for a second. Greek culture was slowly assimilating Israel. You want to know the fancy term? It's called Hellenization. It's when Greek culture assimilates all the other cultures to it. And it was happening in Israel. It was assimilating Israel, especially in Galilee up north where there were more Gentiles living. Judah down south was holding stronger against the Greek pervasive influence, but Galilee was by and large saturated with Greco-Roman culture. And this is the site of this sermon. He's preaching in Galilee. And to the Greeks— Extramarital relationships were not only accepted, they were expected. Now, some of you are going to be shocked at this. You shouldn't be. We're not far from it in America. One Greek said, and I'm going to quote We have courtesans, which are prostitutes, for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. That was the Greek mindset. This was a leader of the Greek culture who said that. You see, they demanded that women must remain morally pure while men were given an immoral license to do anything they wanted with anyone. Now, you need to get this. Rome conquered Greece physically and militarily but Greece conquered Rome culturally. And so in the first 500 years of Roman commonwealth there was not a single recorded divorce. That's amazing. In fact, I'm going to tell you when the first one occurred. It was by a man named Spurius Carvilius Ruga. It was 234 BC, and he did so because his wife couldn't have children and he wanted a child. That's the first recorded divorce in the Roman Commonwealth. But rapidly, Greek culture pervaded Rome, and it wasn't long before Rome became as common, before divorce became as common as marriage. Experts saying that the average Roman husband had between 15 and 20 wives over the course of his life. Now, are you getting shocked This is the degradation of the family, beginning with the crumbling of its foundation of marriage. It's not going to be too long before Rome itself crumbles. It will always happen when the family loses its foundation of marriage. There emerged, in fact, a Roman joke that went like this. Marriage brings only two happy days the day when the husband first clasps his wife to his breast, and the day when he lays her in the tomb. That was a Roman joke at the time. See, men, again, had complete dominance over their wives, treating them as mere property. Now, the Jewish people were not as bad as this, but divorce was still commonplace. And what had emerged in first-century Israel was a divorce-for-any-reason practice. And Deuteronomy is going to be where we go. This is where Jesus is taking them and how he answers in Matthew 19. Let's go to Deuteronomy 24, and let me teach you what it says. Here's what it says, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, what on earth is Moses saying? This is from God to Israel through Moses. This is a law that God gave. And the law deals—now listen, this is where they began to get it wrong, the scribes and the Pharisees. They did not get this right— The law that Moses gives here deals primarily with ex-husbands remarrying ex-wives. And it's not primarily a law about divorce and remarriage, though the Pharisees in Jesus' day made it that way. Here's the situation in Israel. The husband finds an indecency in his wife, and he issues her a certificate of divorce. What that is is not defined, that indecency. It's not defined. It's not adultery. How do you know it's not adultery? Because if it was adultery, simply, she would be stoned to death, as would the man who was with her. They both would be stoned to death. There was a capital punishment for adultery. So the indecency wasn't adultery. It was something along the lines, well, most commentators believe, and means in modesty or indecent behavior— on the wife's end, the wife's part. And while all this at first seems terrible and and shoddy treatment by God to women, that's how I've actually heard women tell me, or, you know, get back to me on this passage, how would God be so cruel? Well, you don't yet know really what's going on because it's everything but cruel from God. In those days, marriages weren't performed by pastors. Divorces weren't granted by officials. All a man had to do was to tell his wife that he's divorcing her, and no reason would even be necessary. By the way, in Arab countries, Muslim religion, all you've got to do is say, I divorce you three times, and you just severed your marriage. That's Muslim faith. Well God introduced laws in Deuteronomy 24. Now listen, get this ladies to protect the vulnerable wife. This entire these entire four verses are all about protecting the wives who were being cast away by their husbands. And it contains three divine principles, each of them intended to protect the vulnerability of wives. Here's the first one. God's command narrowed divorce to only certain and specific causes. No longer could there be a divorce for any cause. So before an Israelite, a Jewish man could obtain a divorce, the husband had to establish the cause described under the title of uncleanness, and he had to have the bill of divorce authenticated by two witnesses. Now there was a legal process to it. The frivolous excuses that men had been using were now severely limited. They were prohibited. Before this, a man could discard his wife, turn her out of his home, leave her unprovided for and at the mercy of the world. But God introduced a law. To regulate this, God did not institute divorce. God hates divorce. Divorce is not from God. It never is in any situation, bar no exception. The law was given to protect the woman by requiring that she received a bill of divorcement, which was a statement that she'd been dismissed because of unfaithful— not because of unfaithfulness like adultery, but for a lesser reason. Now, ladies, listen. Here's the mercy in this from God. It could only be given to her in the presence of two witnesses. And the law made divorce formal, not on the grounds of adultery, ladies, which allowed her then to remarry. There's a second principle. God's command allowed her to remarry. And I want to expand on that just with one statement. Without this bill in hand, without this bill in her hand, and she remarried she would be accused of adultery and killed this was evidence that she had not committed adultery evidence that there were two witnesses that corroborated she was given it and evidence that she was now allowed to remarry but there's a third principle of god's and god's mercy is seen in it God's command, thirdly, protected the woman from being treated as disposable property. See, if he divorces his wife, and she legally remarried, she's got the bill in her hand, she legally remarries, and her new husband divorces her, she can never be demanded back by her former husband. So if he wakes up, ladies, you're going to get this, if he wakes up and realizes, hey, the grass was not greener, He can't go back and demand her back. It impressed on Israel the permanency of dissolving a marriage. So you've got to take great thought before you do. In giving Israel this law, God was not blessing divorce. He's managing their hardened hearts. And he's protecting their wives from a terribly heinous condition. Now, I want you to listen to this because we're all about, just about to go back to Jesus in Matthew 5. The scribes interpreted indecency by the time of Jesus as anything they disliked about their wives. Jesus is about to settle the debate, and he's going to uphold the beauty and the sanctity of marriage. Point number three, our final point. This is the correction that Jesus gave to divorce and remarriage to the scribes. And look what he writes, or look what he's preached in Matthew 5. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me give you a little bit of warning. I'm going to end this message on a a cliffhanger in a few minutes. Next week, when you get back here, I'm gonna explain to you some very, very poignant, clear questions that I know you're gonna be asking and the answers to them from Scripture. I'm not gonna get all the way to that. I will get to that next week, but I'm gonna get you far a little bit of the ways. Jesus summarizes in these two verses, his law on divorce and marriage. He's going to expand it in Matthew chapter 19. And I wanna take you there for just a little bit. And we're going to learn precisely what led to the rabbi's misinterpretation. Here's what Matthew 19 in this incredibly famous passage on divorce and remarriage, starting in verse 4. And Pharisees came up and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, take a break for a second and look at me if you would. Here's what's likely happening. Matthew chapter 14, John the Baptist was killed by Herod. His head was put on a platter. He was decapitated. He did it gladly because John the Baptist was speaking out against Herod, who unlawfully remarried. So what's probably happening here is the Pharisees are trying to set Jesus up to incur the wrath and the penalty similarly From Herod. This is what's going on likely in the backdrop. We go on in Matthew 19. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. "'What therefore God has joined together, "'let not man separate,' they said to him. "'Why then,' the trap continues, Why then—and here's the misinterpretation—why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to her, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. See, Jesus takes him back all the way to Genesis chapter 2, right in the very beginning, to the first marriage, Adam and Eve. And he affirms that no one should separate a man and a woman whom God has joined together. Now, I really like John MacArthur, what he says. Piper says it as well. Every marriage, whether you're believers or not, God joins you together. There is never a marriage where God is not the one joining them. It may not be a wise marriage. It may not be the marriage that God preferred. It will be a marriage, perhaps unequally yoked at times. But God, when it comes to it, and they take their vows and their oaths, he joins them together into an indissoluble unity. So he takes them back to Genesis 2, affirming man should not separate from a woman whom God has joined together. Now, I want to say this really quickly. We're going to get to some really interesting parts, I think, in a moment. But for those of you who are not yet married, I really wish wish that you would come and get pre-engagement counseling. Because I have found pre-marriage counseling is really not as effective as pre-engagement counseling. Because once you've already said, I will, before you say, I do, the train's already down the tracks. Now, I will tell you this, and I'm going to go into this a little bit more next week. There are times where I have done pre-marriage counseling, and I begin praying earnestly, God, please stop this. I did one recently, had two sessions into six sessions. I was already seeing massive problems coming their direction, very young. One of the indicators of the problem was I asked each of them separately, why do you want to get married to this person, and they each said, word for word, verbatim, this person is my best friend, and I cannot wait to begin life together. That's really not the best reason to be married. And more and more counseling began to unearth more and more potential problems that were devastatingly huge, and I began to say, God, the train is down the tracks. They're getting married in two weeks. I told them, I think you're going to have a lot of problems. I'm very upfront in pre-marriage counseling. Believe me, I do too much marriage counseling to not be. And so I said, I think you're going to have a lot of problems. And of course, they don't listen. Nobody on the tracks listens to that. That's why pre-engagement is better. You're not yet hooked emotionally so solidly that you can't any longer hear reason and biblical truth. Well, God is so good. Because the morning of the wedding, I woke up, and there's a text from the potential that day to be groom, saying, we've called off the wedding. Now, what went through me was a mixture of shock and praise, to be honest with you, because I knew it was going to be an absolutely train wreck of a marriage. And I thanked God that He intervened. Parents, remember that. If you know your child is engaged to someone, that is going to be a lifelong and create a lifelong difficulty in marriage. Remember, God cares more even than you do and pray. So I began to reach out, and I said, what's going on? He said, well, we got in an argument so bad last night that she took my ring, the engagement ring, threw it at me, so stressed, began bleeding. We had to take her to the emergency room. We've been in the emergency room all night, and we finally realized if we can't be happy on the eve of our wedding, then maybe we shouldn't get married. Thank you, God. Marriage is not... Able to be torn apart, but by one reason. Sexual immorality, and that is not a command to divorce. That is an allowance, but grace is seen even when you stay together. More on that later and much more next week. So Jesus corrects them. They had misinterpreted the law of God. They misinterpreted Deuteronomy 24. They said because... Why did Moses command? Moses never commanded. That was from God. God, by extension, never commanded divorce. Moses allowed. That's a very different word. Very different. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. It was because the hearts, listen, of the men were hardened, refusing to honor their wives in marriage. Now, listen, I've I've done... 25 years of counseling marriage couples, married couples. I've not found an exception yet to what I'm about to tell you. Every single person in a marriage who begins to initiate divorce or talk about divorce, there is not an exception to this. Their heart is hardening even before their spouse's eyes. It is almost so literal that you can watch it happen. And a hardened heart begins to justify anything and begins to believe, well, God wants me happy. And since she or he makes me unhappy, then God must want me to divorce and remarry. That's the lie and the deception of a hardened heart. And Jesus is getting at this because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now listen, get the terminology, get the pronoun, because of your hardness of heart. A thousand years ago or more, Moses allowed you. Do you see what he's doing? He's bringing them in to the Israelites of, of Deuteronomy 24. They're no different. But Moses did not command divorce. He allowed it. Nowhere in all—by the way, please mark this— nowhere in all of Scripture does God either bless or command divorce. Not one place. He permits it. And even then, for one situation only, back to chapter 5, verse 32, I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Because I'll tell you why. In that culture, there was almost no woman that could exist on her own. It was a culture entirely unfair to women. She would likely be begging at the gates of the city just to make ends meet and eat. So, of course, she's going to remarry. She needs a provider. That's how their system and their culture was built. Now, I'm going to end on a cliffhanger like I told you, and I'm going to pick this up next week, but I'm going to answer next week some very practical questions on divorce or remarriage. Is it allowed? When is divorce allowed? Well, I already told you that one today. Jesus says it clearly. One case, sexual immorality. But what does that mean? What is sexual immorality? We're going to look at that next week. And is remarriage allowed? And is it allowed among Christians the same as it's allowed among a Christian who's divorced from an unbeliever. We're going to look at that next week. But let me close by summarizing what we learned. Divorce has been rampant in every age, in every society, and God's own people, unfortunately, are not an exception. And God never blesses or commands divorce, but He will allow it in one situation— Sexual immorality. And God cares very much for the one who is divorced for frivolous reasons. She has been, or in some cases, he is left vulnerable, and he hates the cruelty of those who dispose of their spouses. And that was a summary of today. Let me end this way, and we'll get ready for what we're going to look at next week. Next week, no holds barred. I'm going to be equally sensitive Incredibly clear and irresistibly Scripture-centered. Come back next week. But let me end this way. There are people in our church who have divorced, sometimes before they became Christians, and sometimes even after they became Christians. And you may be struggling right now, has God disposed of me? Have I so broken and severed something that He brought together that I am perpetually cast away from Him? I want to answer that briefly. And the answer is emphatically no. No. God's forgiveness does not include everything in your life but divorce. It includes everything in your life. And I want to tell you what that ought to result in you when it comes to marriage. This last week, I took my 11-year-old down with some other motorcycle riders from our church to meet riders from Georgia and North Carolina in Wythville, Virginia. And there we rode for five days all around the mountains and the valleys of Virginia, and we studied the Word of God from the Gospel of Luke every morning. And I was coming back, and we're coming along Route 81, and he got my little 11-year-old on the back, and he got a lot of time to be thinking. And one of the things that I found myself doing was that when a car in the left lane passed me going faster, I found myself saying, hmm, that person will get a ticket before I do. So if I come over behind him and go 85 miles per hour, then I'm going to be okay." And I caught myself thinking that, and then all of a sudden God brought it into my mind and goes, you know, that's a lot of times how you think spiritually, that Jesus took your ticket for you, so you're off scot-free, so you can do whatever you want. That's liberalism. That's a misuse of grace. What grace ought to do is make you so thoroughly thankful for the substitute of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that He died our death so that we could live His life. He became a sinful man, a sin bearer, so that we could become the righteous ones of God. And His death made us clean. And the moment you put your faith in Him, that very precise moment that you laid all of your confidence on the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again so that you could be saved and saved for eternity and enjoy being in the family of God, enjoy being in the kingdom of God, enjoy having a new heart, a new spiritual center filled with the Spirit of God, walking in a way that's pleasing Him. All of that happened because of Jesus. What gratitude that ought to give us and what serious obedience to His Word should live in us. So just because divorce is covered under the blood doesn't mean that you can play fast and loose with your marriages. In fact, it ought to mean the very opposite, that I will love my wife, you will love your spouse more than you have ever loved them before. And you will move towards them to communicate the value that they are to your life. And if there's problems in your marriage, and this is the final thing I'm going to tell you today. If there's problems in your marriage, and by the way, I'm going to tell you, and I tell this to every couple I do their weddings for, marriage is the hardest thing you will ever do, but it will give you the most joy you will ever experience. So if there's problems in your marriage, there is help available. The grace of God is sufficient. Amen? Get ready for next week. I hope you're back. Let's pray.